the mantra of the book is that, you know, we evolved to be physically active for two reasons and two reasons only. One is when it's necessary and the other when it's rewarding. And and the more we can make it necessary and rewarding, the more we're likely to enjoy it and not feel guilty about it um, or, you know, stressed about it. My guest today is Dan Lieberman. Dan is professor of biological sciences and human evolutionary biology at Harvard University. His focus is on the evolution of human physical activity. Dan's latest book is Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. In addition to busting myths about exercise, he asks, is sitting really the new smoking? If we are born to walk and run, why do most of us take it easy whenever possible? Does running ruin your knees? Using his own research and experiences throughout the world, Dan recounts in simple-to-understand English how and why humans evolved to walk, run, dig, and do other necessary and rewarding physical activities while avoiding needless exertion. I recently sat down with Professor Lieberman to tell the story of how we never evolved to exercise, to do voluntary physical activity for the sake of health, and how we shouldn't feel so stressed about it. Professor Dan Lieberman, thank you so much for being on the show. I greatly, greatly appreciate it. It's my pleasure. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. You know, I've read a lot of books on health and exercise, and there's something about your book that when I started to read it, and then I started to go on YouTube and listen to your lectures, it just resonated with me. So before we begin, the book is called Exercised, Why Something We Never Evolved to Do is Healthy and Rewarding. Now, what I found so interesting about your book is the places on this planet that you went to to observe how indigenous people live, and then you took that forward. Where's the wackiest place in the world you've ever been to? <laughs> mm. I don't know. I mean, um, I actually think of all the things I did for this book, the strangest was going to a mixed martial arts event in Plymouth, Massachusetts. But um, but seriously, I, I've um, you know I've been working in Africa since 1987. Uh, so I, um, I've been working in Mexico and I've traveled all over the world, but probably the place that was most, I felt the most uh, at sea, most alien was when I went uh, hunting with some uh, Inuit hunters in Greenland. Cause I realized that if I fell off that sled and they, and they lost me, I would die soon. I mean, that's a, that's a hostile, dangerous environment that humans really, uh, you know, it's amazing that humans can live there. And why did you go there? Um, because I was invited uh, by a colleague who uh, I'm collaborating with some Danish researchers to study diabetes and the effects of physical activity on diabetes. And they were doing a, a documentary um, and, uh, on, um, on diabetes in Denmark. And Denmark has a long association with Greenland. And they decided to, to go to Greenland where diabetes rates are going up and to kind of explore um, um, how, you know, what's going on in Greenland. So I got invited to go on this trip and I, I, I couldn't say no because it was such an interesting opportunity. And what did you learn uh, when you were on this trip? Because I, I, you have a great account in the book of it. And I don't want to I don't want to spill the beans, but there are some really super things that uh, that you learned from that insane trip and how cold it is there. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, I think the, the the most important thing you learn is just how it, how incredibly powerful cultural adaptation is. How humans have figured out how to solve so many problems. I mean, if you can learn to live in you know, 74 degrees north in the winter uh, without, without you know, modern technology. 74 degrees? nothing that the human... Negative, you mean? 
So, well, that's, 74 degrees north, so that's, that's, that's the latitude. Right. When I was there, it was like minus 30 to minus 40, right. you know, which doesn't matter whether it's Celsius or Fahrenheit, same thing. But, the, but remember, people were living there before, you know, modern, and you know, and before the Industrial Revolution, before electricity, before all these incredible inventions. So if we can learn to do that, there's nothing we can't solve. And I think, I think that's what really uh, impressed me. Also, what impressed me was um, just how challenging that life is. It's, it's you know, I just... I, I, you know, it's just physically challenging. And, and I describe in the book, one of the challenges I never expected uh, was sitting on a sled for hours. Cause we, you know, to get from the coast to the central sort of plateau, we had to, we had dogs pull us on a sled and you know, it's not like a car, which is designed for your comfort. It's like a, it's a, it's an ancient, you know, old fashioned Inuit sled. And I was in agony on that sled because I'm not used to sitting without a back support for hours and hours and hours for days. Actually, it was a, it was just one of many sort of eye-opening experiences. What I really enjoyed about, first of all, I, what I really enjoyed about your approach is that you go into godforsaken places where there are still indigenous people who live the same way for tens of thousands of years without changing more or less, and I know they're becoming fewer and fewer, and you observe them in terms of their activity and at rest and also during work, and have come to amazing conclusions based on those observations that just take a lot of the, what we consider facts, and turn them really into stories, nothing more than myths. Well, you know, we just, you know, it's normal to think your life is normal, right? I mean, we think it's normal to sit in chairs all day and drive around in cars and get on airplanes and, you know, eat breakfast cereal that comes in a box and, you know, all the other things that are part of our, our world. And, and they are normal to us. And there's nothing wrong with that. But, but uh, I'm an evolutionary biologist and an anthropologist. And, and my job is to try to think about how our world differs from the way humans mostly live for generations, for thousands of generations. I mean, even, even the way you and I live today compared to where our great-grandparents lived is, is astoundingly different. And yet we don't often think about how that affects our bodies. I mean, we sort of know that at a sort of general level. And, and, and there's a lot to learn because uh, we've, there's so many things that about the modern world that we've gotten right. You know, life, life expectancy is, is extraordinary today. Infant mortality is incredibly, incredibly small. Um, you know, we're, just think how fast we were able to come up with vaccines for the, for the coronavirus. I mean, this is, uh, it's impressive. It's incredible. It's amazing. Um, and yet we also have higher rates of cancer and heart disease and diabetes and all kinds of other diseases that used to be rare to the point of, of non-existence. So we can, I think we can have our cake and eat it too. I think we can enjoy all the wonderful benefits of the modern world, but do much better by learning about, about how our bodies um, work in the environments that we've created and, and how we can kind of have the best of both worlds. So just give me one example. I know you give tons of examples in the book of um, ways our, not, not me talking a thousand or 10,000 years ago, but just our grandparents lived in terms of a sewing machine. Just expand on that for a sec. Yeah. So my grandmother had one of those old fashioned singer sewing machines, right? Which she pedaled with her foot. And, you know, I can't remember the exact number of calories you spend, but it's like, it's like 15, 20 more calories an hour to pedal that, that sewing machine. Now imagine you're, you know, working in a factory and you've got an electric sewing machine versus a pedal sewing machine. Well, it turns out just that, you know, just pedaling that sewing machine, you know, for several hours a day, for five days a week, for, you know, 50 weeks a year, 
that's a lot of calories. That's a lot of physical activity. And then you add to that, you know, the elevators, the escalators, the shopping carts, et cetera. We have decreased over the, just the last two generations, how many calories we spend just doing stuff, forget exercise, just, just the, 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 the calories we spend in normal life, we've decreased by two to 300 calories a day. That's an enormous amount when you add that up over weeks and months and, and as well as years. So, and that's just one example. You know, a friend of mine, uh, when Yankee Stadium, when they rebuilt Yankee Stadium, I think in the 70s, he bought one of the old seats that they had. And the seats at Yankee Stadium from the house that Ruth built were about yay wide, really much <laughs> narrow. And they lost so many seats in expanding the stadium because our, <laughs> our butts are much bigger than they were 70 years ago. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's we've changed. I mean, uh, in just in my lifetime, the percentage of Americans who are obese has doubled. That's insane. Um, it's doubled. So, so, um, and you know, uh, with with that comes, you know, um, a lot of trouble. And um, and 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 and, but the but the reason I wrote this book is that we we're, we're often in the blame game here, right? We're often trying to to make people feel bad about about their physical inactivity. We make people feel bad about being overweight. And the one thing I've learned is that it's, there's nothing special about, about people who aren't overweight versus overweight. It's not, most people are overweight, it's not their fault. And most people who are physically inactive, it's not their fault. And, 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 and what we do though, is we, we make people feel bad. We make them feel exercise. That's why I titled the book I do. Make them feel anxious and confused and nervous and, 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 and blamed and shamed. So wait, hang on, hang just, on a second, Dan. Why isn't it their fault? People look, one second, hang on a second, let me just build a case, because this is what, I was overweight most of my life, and growing up, it was, I, my mother would tell me I snacked too much, or I, did, uh, I didn't go out enough, or I didn't uh, play enough sports, or whatever it was, it was my responsibility, and the reason that I was a big kid was because everything was on me, and you're telling me that's not so? Well, because we all have basic instincts. It's, we, we have you know, millions and millions of generations for us to you know, eat whatever food is available to us and to, to be as inactive as possible. And all of a sudden we've created this environment with, you know, all the snack foods you can possibly have and, and, you know, escalators and elevators and shopping carts and, and cars and whatever. And now we're asking people to do something intrinsically unnatural, which is to say, no, I'm not going to have that piece of chocolate cake or no, I'm not going to take that escalator. You know, you know, yeah, yes, I'm going to do like, think about a treadmill, like one of the, you know, Getting on a treadmill, a noisy, expensive, nasty machine that you know, nobody really likes. Let's be honest. Uh, that you you know you trudge on for hours and hours, and hours you know a week um, um, because it's like cod liver oil. Uh, there's a reason most people hate it, right? Um, but we're told that if you don't do it, you're lazy. Um, but we never evolved to do anything like that. And so, yes, so there is some personal choice and some personal responsibility, and all of us have to make choices. But we're asking people to make choices that are really hard to make. And this session, and even more importantly, we're asking kids to make them. And children don't have the wherewithal to understand this sort of stuff. And by the time you're overweight, um, by the time you're unfit, uh, and you're a kid, and you know you're just do what your parents tell you, and you do what your environment tells you, it's really hard to turn that around. You can, but it's really, really hard. So 70 years ago, 80 years ago, there, escalators weren't so ubiquitous. Uh, elevators in many buildings uh, were non-existent. So you had to walk up a six, flight, uh, six flights of stairs. 
or you're like your grandmother, had to use the pedal on the sewing machine, or you had to carry a big lump of ice into your apartment or coal. So you were burning off calories, and you were doing what evolution has taught you to do by moving and consuming whatever calories you needed, because there weren't fast food and all sorts of junk, dense calorie-packed things that we have today. Is that more or less accurate? Yeah, basically, yeah. And it's not just about calories. It's also just about turning on all the all the cellular machinery that your body activates when you're being active. I mean, when you're, when you're, when you're active, you, your, your cells produce antioxidants, your cells produce, you know, molecules that help repair DNA. I mean, there's cells produce more, more of the uh, molecules that help you fight viral infections, right? Like, like, like COVID. Uh, these are all things that we, our bodies evolved to do when we're physically active. Now we've created a world where we, physical activity is now optional. And, and so now we have to choose to do it. That's exercise. So exercise is physical activity that you, that's discretionary, that's voluntary, which we do for the sake of health and fitness. That's great. I'm all in pay. I exercise, right? I, I really promote exercise. But let's not be honest. Let's be honest and, and, and recognize that exercise is a really weird modern thing that nobody ever did. So the, the populations where I go and do field work, you know, in Greenland or, or in Africa or in Mexico, Nobody exercises. I'm the only guy who gets up in the morning and goes for a six-mile run. They think I'm hilarious. To nowhere. They, they get, a, a jog to nowhere. Yeah, to nowhere. No, for, for no purpose for no reason. at all. Like, what's this gringo doing? You know, it's like crazy. And sometimes the kids run along and, you know, shout at me or whatever. Um, and that's fine. Um, but, you know, they don't need to because they're working hard. They're in the fields, you know, growing corn or, or you know, you know, milking the cows and all that. I mean, the idea of... You know, in the area in Kenya where I've been work, doing field work for, for, for over 12 years now, this particular community, the kids, the average kid uh, has to go uh, about 10 kilometers every day to get to school on foot. How many American kids have to walk six miles to get to school or run six miles? How many kids walk six, how many kids walk six miles a yeah. day? And that's that's the average. So some are doing more, right? And, and they have no choice because they have to get to school, and 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 so they run uh, a lot of them because they're you know they're late, <laughs> so they run to school barefoot, by the way. And and um, um, you know they don't choose to do it. That's not because they get up in the morning and they think, ah, I think I'm going to run to school. You know, they don't do that. They do it because they have to. Um, but but it turns out it's really good. It's really good for us. So, what happened? What switch? Is, not, is still flipped on for us that put our bodies, which really are a wonder of nature, that it put it put us in today's society where those things were still not flipped off. Uh, for example, we're still trained, if you will, or programmed to conserve calories and not burn them for the family. So if we see stairs or we see an escalator, why is it that I think you wrote 5% of the people who take the stairs, 95%. Yeah. Why, is our, why do our brains immediately flip and say, take the escalator? Because, well, look, first of all, nobody knows the gene, right? You know, or the genes behind that. Uh, so that's, that's, those are undiscovered, but it's clearly an instinct, right? It's an instinct to save calories. And the reason for that is that, and it makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, is that if you think about, about evolution and life, it's a really simple equation. The equation of life is babies in, you know, calories in, babies out, right? We eat, 
So we have energy to do stuff, ultimately to have babies. <laughs> that's, it's really kind of depressing, but that's actually all natural selection cares about. Um, and the, those of us who have more babies who survive, we pass on our genes to the next generation and that's it, right? That's, that's very sad. So until recently, until, until extremely recently, almost everybody on the planet struggled to get enough calories. There were just enough calories to do that, right? And so people who had more calories had more babies. Um, so, and so there's two ways of having more calories. One is to spend them, spend less, and the other is to get more in. And so we have deep-seated instincts, all of us, to, 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 to eat calorie-rich food, foods with lots of sugar and fat. And we also have deep-seated instincts not to expend calories when it isn't useful for us. So play is useful. Working in the fields is useful. You know, going out hunting or gathering is useful. Uh, you know, certain kinds of social interactions like dancing and finding a mate and, you know, being sexy, that's useful. Um, but uh, getting on a treadmill for an hour, that's not useful, right? So, so those are those deep instincts. So, so there were, although there were never any escalators in the Stone Age, that little voice all of us have, right? When I go to my office, there's an elevator to the fifth floor of my building, right? Every single time I go into the building, no exceptions. I have to fight with that little voice that wants me to take the elevator. And the only reason why I usually take the stairs is that because I write about this stuff, if anybody catches me in the elevator, they'll know I'm a hypocrite. <laughs> so, so I have a serious motivation, but I struggle with that all the time. Everybody does. It's, and, and, um, and it's, and, and it's hard. Um, it's really hard to overcome that. Now imagine I were super stressed. I had two jobs. I, you know, I had, screaming kids. I mean, all these various things I have to deal with. I'm not going to take the stairs. Of course, I'm going to take the elevator. See, I always find that, you know, you start to rationalize. I have to get there quicker or I'm going to miss the plane or what have you. Take that walkway. And I, I always fight with that, trying to be logical and say, I'm going to sit on a plane for three to six hours. Let me get moving now. So I usually take the stairs. And it's just unbelievable to me that people are waiting in line to take that escalator. And in maybe it's 10 steps, 20 steps, and I'm up at the top already, but I guess it's, you know, as you're saying, it's that, uh, you know, it's, it's that little voice that is trying to tell us, uh, save those calories. Yeah, of course. And then the other phenomenon, which I'm sure you know very well, is hyperbolic discounting, right? We value short term more than the long term, right? Bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. And so um, I think myself, well, you know, if I just take the elevator this time, it's only once, right? Next, tomorrow, I'll take the stairs, right? Uh, you know, I'll just take that teaspoon of sugar today in my coffee. Tomorrow I won't, right? It's just one teaspoon. And of course, we all know that, you know, if you keep doing that <laughs> and those those little doses add up over hours, you know, days, weeks, and years. And um, and so and they, they, they turn out to be ra rather meaningful. So if you calculate, you know, if you're one of those folks who's trying to cut down on your sugar, just do a little simple calculation about how much sugar you would take, you know, consume less if you just didn't put, you know, sugar in your coffee, for example. I'll make a bet it's quite a bit. Yeah, no, I, you got me thinking when I was reading your book about your grandmother on the sewing on the uh, sewing machine pedal, I think you wrote somewhere the equivalent of one or two marathons a year in terms yeah. of calorie expenditure. Yeah. So yeah. right there is several, you know, five, six pounds uh, that you could easily gain per year. In five years, that's 25 to 30 pounds overweight, just yeah. that she kept in check or anyone could keep yeah. in check. Yeah, it's true. I mean, these little things add up. It's 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 astounding, uh, but we, you know, it's very hard to kind of think about that in the here and now, right? And and you know, we're asking ourselves. Right? I mean, you've, you've probably read 
you know, behavioral economists and the slow brain and the fast brain. And, you know, our fast brain are, is our instincts, basically. And it's and we have the capability of overriding our fast brain with our slow brain, but it's work, it's, it's effort. It takes training and also it takes some wherewithal. And there's a reason that today, and uh, there's a, you know, for the first time in history, people who are, used to be that people who were wealthy, the elites could afford to be inactive, you know, hang around on couches all day and be served and whatever. And everybody else was thin and active. It's for the first time in history, that's been reversed. It's now people who are wealthy, who have time, have money, have the ability to go and exercise, whereas everybody else is commuting and, you know, working jobs that prevent them from being physically active. And they're the ones who are struggling more. Uh, I think um, runner's world, uh, somebody told me, I'm not sure if this is true, but that like runner's world has like the second highest per capita income of any magazine. Hmm. Um, I don't know if it's number two, but it's certainly up there. And if you go to, you know, Ironman or, or marathons, you see, you know, there are a lot of people who are, you know, well-to-do, well-off, middle-aged, successful people who are picked up marathoning. You know, you can't be a marathoner if you've got a, you know, if you're, if you've got a hard, serious difficult day job with a long or, or you have or you have two jobs so you have a night job yeah, or you, exactly or exactly. you're a single parent it's very difficult you how much time you need to devote to spare time to, to exercise right, yeah, time right yeah yeah exactly so you go into these these places on planet earth where you see indigenous people living there as they've lived for many many centuries generations zillions of generations and you monitor what they do and more importantly uh, the myths that we've developed uh, thinking that this is what they did and which they don't do. So, for example, they are always moving. They don't rest. They don't slouch. They don't do anything. <laughs> you you put that, just turn that totally around. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, if you spend time in, in you know, I, I, I mostly work in farming villages. So I'm really interested in subsistence farmers. And, you know, if you walk into a, a farming village in Mexico or Africa or whatever, uh, sure, people are working hard in the fields a lot of the day, but when they're not working hard in the fields, they're they're plopped down under a tree. <laughs> you know, they're sitting, they're resting. You know, you walk into these villages. I've been, I've had the good fortune to go to a few hunter-gatherer camps and meet some hunter-gatherers. You walk into camp, everybody's sitting. Um, and so, you know, people have put, you know, sensors on folks in these communities. And it turns out they, they sit as much as we do. Um, they sit like the, the Hadza, which are a very famous a group of hunter-gatherers in Tanzania. They're famous because they're one of the few and people have been studying them a lot. Well, one of my former students, um, Dave Reichlin and company, uh, they actually put sensors on the Hadza. This is not work I did, but this work that they did. And they found they, they sat on average 10 hours a day, which is pretty much the average amount of time a, a, a you know, middle-aged American spends sitting. So the idea that we sit more than, than, than hunter-gatherers is just completely made up. Um, uh, it's just not true. It's also, uh, I, I love all the not true things because I, I, you tell people this, they look at you cross-eyed. Uh, slouching, you know, slouching in a chair. <laughs> that's another thing that you've observed these people do. Yeah, I mean, everybody slouches. There's a reason we slouch. When you slouch, you spend less, it's such energy uh, sitting. And, you know, it was a, there was a German orthopedist named Stauffel in 18-something who, who decided that, uh, you know, this is when the chair first became commercialized. So until, until about 1850-something, um, almost nobody could afford a chair with a back because they weren't mass manufactured. So, so people sat on stools and benches, really. And it wasn't until the Industrial Revolution got going that, that chairs with backs became common and that you know, average everyday people could buy them. And, and this so horrified Stoffel and other German orthopedists that they decided 
that this is going to be really bad and that and that people when they sit should sit the same way that they stand and this is where this idea about posture mm -hmm. came in. and and ever since then people have been scolding people like me for slouching and yet you go to you go to a you go to an you know an African village everybody's slouching when they're sitting down you know, if their back is against a tree they're they'll slouch you know I mean most of the time they can't because they're sitting on the ground but um or they or they lie down or whatever and um and it so I was kind of interested by this. So I started delving into the literature and there, you know, there's a lot of uh, research um, on the relationship between posture when you're sitting and your likelihood of back pain. And it turns out we've confused cause and effect. Mm. So people who slouch turn out, they don't, they're not more likely to have back pain than people who don't slouch, even though we're told that all the time. What, what is the case is that people who have weak backs are more likely to have back pain. And people have weak backs or more likely to slouch. So that's the that's the relationship. But it's not the slouching itself which causes the back pain. It's the weak backs, which is caused by, well, sitting all the time on a chair like I'm sitting on right now, which has a back rest and that enables me never to have to use my back muscles. So, you know, go ahead, slouch, but don't, you know, don't don't worry about the slouching, but the because the slouching itself is not ca causing problems, but but rather if you if you can't sit up straight, that means you probably have a weak back, and that's what you should worry about. So we were confused between causation and correlation. That gets Absolutely. messed up all the time. And we, and we do that all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's a need, one of those, you know, thinking fast, thinking slow is one of those things we like to come up with a quick answer without thinking it through. Yeah. That's it. Another thing that I, I've, I've noticed when I started working out years ago, uh, not years ago, when I started rowing, I bought a rower, and it, I look at it and I feel guilty if I don't use it. So I'm totally exercised with that. And uh, noticing that people from third world countries are able to get into a squat position where almost ass to the grass, much more flexibility than modern folk today. And that's usually the way they eat. And I think you had an experience with that as well. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm a terrible, terrible um, squatter. Um, because I, my, my, I'm stiff, and I'm, I'm a runner, and runners often are pretty stiff. And um, I'm trying to be less stiff. I'm trying to stretch more, but um, you know, I hate stretching. I, I, that's another thing. Is that you, could you tell me? Is that ever is something in my my our genes? I hate to stretch. It's it's <laughs> well. I, the funny thing is, I never see anybody in these <laughs> communities stretching. They're just naturally more flexible. I think because they don't, you know, sit for long periods of time in chairs or who knows what. But anyway, um, so I was at this um, at this campfire. Um, watching uh, some women roast a tortoise. Complicated story. <laughs> but anyway, um, and I was trying to be, you know, ho-hum about it, and, you know, be like, you know, just, just kind of watch the scene. And, you know, it was kind of a, and, and, um, and I was sitting in between two old ladies, uh, two, 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 two women. And, um, and my legs were on fire because I'm really bad at squatting. You know, I was just in agony and, but I was stuck. <laughs> So I, I described this in the book, but I actually fell into the lap of one of these these ladies because uh, I just lost it. You know, I just kind of, you know, I just tumbled into her lap. They all thought this was really funny, this, you know, awkward. And they were able they were able to American. squat well into their elder years, where most people in America, the older people, they just can't even get out of a chair. And these people are able right. to squat. Yeah, well, I mean, they're, they're, they're strong and they're flexible. And, and one of the things that, that's really important, in fact, I think the chapter I'm most proud of in the book is the one about aging, because... Because we have a world in which we think that um, it's normal to be less physically active as you get older. And 
you know, we have a concept of retirement. We also have weekends. We have, you know, and we have, and we have all these wonderful things that make life easier and more comfortable. And, and, and they're, and they're, you know, we like them because it's nice to have comfort and ease, right? But the problem is that it cause it enables us to atrophy. And what we find is that in, in hunter-gatherer populations or, or subsistence farmer populations, pre-industrial populations, that's what I should say, that people as they age stay pretty strong. I mean, they do lose some strength because um, they're not working as, you know, vigorously, but they don't lose strength at the, at the same rate as Americans tend to lose strength. And um, the result is that they're less likely to become frail. One of the big problems with aging is, a, is, a, is muscle wasting. The, the, the technical term for it is called sarcopenia. Sarco is the Greek word for flesh and penia is for loss. So mm. it's flesh loss, really kind of graphic term, right? But we all know sarcopenia. It's when you, as you get older, you become frail and you can't get out of a chair and it's harder to get off the toilet. It's, you walk more slowly. And of course, when that happens, you get a vicious cycle that sets in. Because as you become more frail, doing other tasks and becomes harder, and then you do it less and less and less, and and that's a problem because when you're physically active, when you get up and you do stuff, you turn on all kinds of repair and maintenance mechanisms that help keep us young, keep us keep us from senescing. Can't stop aging. We all go. All of us hopefully will get old, but senescence is when is when things break down as you age, and physical activity. The reason it's so important is that it turns on all these mechanisms. There's so many that we don't even know them all mm. that keep us from senescing or slow the rate at which we senesce, keep us kind of doing better. And so, um, and so, uh, so just kind of continuing to use your body as you get older uh, is, is, is unquestionably really, really, really important. So the older we get, the more important exercises, not the not less important. You know, I, I noticed this in the past couple of years as I fly down quite often to Florida on business. And now with, you know, baggage of, you know, the check baggage is 35 or $30, whatever it is, most people take a carry-on. And I can't tell you how many times I'm on this plane with elderly people. They can't take a 20-pound bag and lift it. These are men as well. And lift it over their head to place in the overhead compartment. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and I'm helping them. And I say, my gosh, I, I just got to keep exercising and doing strength training because I never want to be in that situation. And I'm thinking, when's the last time they ever lifted anything 20 to 30 pounds over their head? And it was probably yeah. been decades. Yeah, it's probably the only time. The only problem is when they get on a plane and then someone like you helps yeah. them. Because why, why, why would you have to in the world today, right? Because we have machines that do everything for us. Um, just think about this, right? Until recently, if you wanted dinner, right, you had to carry it. If you wanted water, right, you know, just, just going into a bathroom and turning on a pipe, right? We just think that's normal, right? You, you turn on a faucet, whoosh, out comes water, right? You don't even, hot water too, right? It's a miracle. But until recently, everybody had to carry every little bit of water that ever was used. Um, uh, firewood, um, um, you know, carrying is, you know, humans carry stuff. That's one reason bipedalism is so cool. It enables us to carry stuff, right? And and now nobody has to carry anything and, and we're paying a price for it. I remember seeing, I forgot exactly the country, you probably, you'll probably know it and the place and the people, whatever it is. There were a whole bunch of strong men uh, who, you know, do all these crazy feats like what's called a farmer's carry, holding heavy weights in both hands and walking. You know, usually these guys carry their body weight in each, in each uh, hand and walk 20, 30, 40, 50 feet, whatever it might be. So they went to this, I forgot exactly the place, 
and they saw old ladies in the field carrying pumpkins and gourds doing the farmer's carry that they were struggling with, and they were doing it with ease. It was absolutely yeah. amazing. I watched you do it. I don't think it was a setup, but it was at, it, they were used to doing this, these old ladies. This is what they did. This is what their position was in their in the tribe or whatever in the social structure of carrying heavy objects. So we invent these farmer carries, farmer's carries, and they do this and get stronger. Yeah, and, well, exactly. Well, I mean, you know, we have to invent new ways to, to be physically active because we don't because we don't have to do it anymore. But um, well, the, one of the really cool things that has been discovered recently is that when older people do weights, right? So we now recommend that as you get older, you should try to do weights twice, twice a week, right? Turns out, and you don't have to have the no pain, no gain stuff, right? Sure, if you want to look like, you know, like Arnold Schwarzenegger, go ahead. But if, if you just want to keep your strength, you don't need to, you don't need to be in pain to, to get the benefits of, of some strength training. But what we found is that even down to the genetic level, you don't lose the ability to respond to those loads. So, you know, if you're in your 70s and you're and you're and you're weak, go to the gym. You can get that back. Um, it's it's never too late, and, and that's another important fact. You don't have to be super strong. You don't have to be super ripped. You don't have to go to crazy workouts that make you in pain. You know, you you can just do moderate levels of physical activity and get enormous benefits. There was one strength trainer uh, who specializes. I think he's in Chicago. He specializes in just uh, elderly people, squats and deadlifts, press and bench press. And he has 95 year old people deadlifting their body weight. Yeah. It's yeah. just a lot of practice. And people who couldn't get out of a chair are now able to squat right. and building That's a right. pitch frame. Yeah. 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 We, and, and we know it's, uh, there's just, there's this abundant evidence that this is not only, this is, this is how our bodies evolved and, you know, we never turn off those mechanisms. So, so that's the good news. It doesn't take a lot and everybody can do it. And even if you're disabled, right, there's ways that you can still, you know, most people with disabilities can still, in fact, people who are, have dis disabilities are often most aware of how important this is because they they don't take things for granted. And so there's lots and lots of ways all of us can find to, 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 to you know, to get the benefits of physical activity. Okay, so I want to ask you this. I walk my dog on average three to three and a half miles a day, two different walks every day, uh, every day. And then I make sure always to take the stairs when there's an elevator where I don't have to go through, you know, some, some, some place you can't even take the stairwell because they don't, the doors don't open. So, okay, I'll always try to take the stairs at the airport. I usually do. Uh, I always bypass the walkway. I try to find things to do that replace exercises that I would usually do. So I'm more than glad to go with to my my wife sends me to the supermarket to carry it home, you know, 10 blocks instead of taking the car. Why? When I look at my rowing machine, my concept, new rowing machine, I get so guilty and it just bothers <laughs> me that I'm not using it. What's going on in my brain that's making me feel that way? Stress well, or, I don't know. or exercise yeah. or exercised. Why, why well, am not, I feeling exercised? Well, I don't know. But I, one reason is that when you're in an airport, you still need to get to the top of the stairs, right? You need to get up there, right? Because you're, the gate is there or the lounge is there or whatever like that. Or when you're, you know, you know you're, you're at least you're getting something out of it, right? It's, it may be not the most um, uh, economical way to get there, but you, there's a benefit to you. There's an obvious immediate benefit to you, right? Also, I've also noticed in, in airports, it's just faster to take the stairs too. Because <laughs> so that's it's a single a, line. It's a, a single line up the escalator, <laughs> and you have to wobble your your carry on. And I'm always scared someone's going to drop one in, on me. You know, it's one of those crazy fears I have. 
Yeah. Anyway, so so I think you're getting some benefit out of it, right? Whereas whereas if you sit in the you go down to my, you know, to the gym and get on a treadmill or a rowing machine or stairmaster or whatever you know torture device you've got down there, you know that there's a benefit, but you're not getting anything out of it right immediately, right? You might get a little dopamine hit afterwards, etc. And you know you'll feel better for the rest of the day, but there's nothing, you know. And I think it 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 it, it highlights why I think we you know, again, the mantra of the book is that, you know, we evolved to be physically active for two reasons and two reasons only. One is when it's necessary and the other when it's rewarding. And and the more we can make it necessary and rewarding, the more we're likely to enjoy it and not feel guilty about it um, or, you know, stressed about it. You know, I think you're spot on because I always hated, my whole life, I hated treadmills. I would rather go for a walk outside and get fresh air or 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 take my bike somewhere, instead of going on a treadmill for 40 minutes, uh, it just, it never made sense to me. It not made sense, it was, it bored me. And people use TVs and listening to music. Why don't you just go and walk 10 blocks? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I mean, I, look, I'm not opposed to it. If, people, if you can stand a treadmill, you like a treadmill, you like watching a movie on it, et cetera, you know, all power to you. I mean, I find it, a, you know, that's the only way I can tolerate a treadmill is by, by diverting myself. Right, misdirection. Right. It's totally misdirection. Yeah. And, and I have the Peloton and, where people are going on bikes for $2,000 and paying a monthly subscription service to be <laughs> in a race with other people to motivate them to do the Peloton. Yeah, right. Well, you know, if that works for you, that's right. fine. I mean, I'm not judgmental about it, but uh, it, it's, it's but, the, but we know that it's not working for most people, right? First of all, most people can't afford Peloton. And secondly, um, and secondly, um, you know, not everybody likes that kind of thing. So, you know, only, you know, according to the, our government's, uh, you know, efforts to measure this sort of stuff, to CDC and, and various other sort of uh, uh, studies, only about 20% of Americans manage to get 150 minutes of physical activity a week, 20%. So 80% of us aren't getting even an average of 21 minutes a day of physical activity. 80. So, so that means that despite our efforts to commercialize it and to also prescribe it to medicalize it's not working exercise. it's not working it's it's working for some but it's not working for everybody so wait and, you're telling me think, 80% of americans are not getting let's say 10 minutes twice a day no physical activity so yeah so if so we define the us government and the and the world health organization and the american heart association and the american college of sports medicine every major organization in the world more or less agrees that 150 minutes a week of physical activity is, is considered baseline. So that's 21 minutes a day. So according to most studies, on average, only about 20% of Americans are getting that. So that means that, yeah, 80% of us aren't managing to get a total, if you add it up over the day, 21 minutes a day of, of moderate to vigorous physical activity. Give me an example of moderate to vigorous activity. So we define that as basically getting your heart rate up above 50%. So that would be like a brisk walk. A brisk walk is moderate physical activity. So you don't have to even be running. Um, climbing the stairs, uh, you know, that's all moderate activity. Running is vigorous physical activity. You know, playing playing game of soccer or swimming is vigorous physical activity. So we're just not getting our heart rate up very much. So 17% or 18%, I think now, of our GDP... I don't know how many things, three, three and a half trillion dollars is spent on healthcare and just increasing as years go on because the population is now aging. Your message is what in order, it seems to be, let me rephrase, it seems to be such a low level of activity, which is very gettable by anybody with a pair of sneakers, you don't even have a pair of sneakers, just move, do something. 
What's the barrier to entry? Why is that taking place? <laughs> I mean, you're right. Um, we spend almost 20% of our GDP on healthcare and uh, about 75% of most uh, medical care is for preventable diseases. Diet and exercise are the two major forms of prevention. So diet's also important, obviously. And, um, and yet we spend, by any estimate, well less than 5% on prevention. Um, partly, be and there's a number of reasons. Well, one is that our medical system is not designed to prevent disease in the first place. You go see a doctor after you're sick, not before you're sick. So our medical system is really designed around treatment, not around prevention. And there's really no, uh, we don't have as a society really um, a structure that's really devoted towards prevention. So schools of public health are into that game, but they're not, they're not that many schools of public health and they don't have a lot of power, right? Um, and, um, and, and then the other is that we just have created a world where uh, it's, you know, nobody's making money really off prevention that much. I mean, so, you know, health clubs are, you know, that's, they're, that's, that's all good. Um, you know, there are products, plenty of companies out there producing healthy foods, that's good. But there's also plenty of other companies out there that are making money off our instincts, right? You know, comfortable shoes and, you know, escalators and shop, you know, all the things that make our lives more comfortable and easy. And, and we buy them, right? Because we want them, right? Because it's nice. We like, comfort is nice, right? So we, we need a, we need a society to figure out ways to help each other and, and, um, and simply, you know, scolding each other or making people feel bad is, is not functioning. So I think we need to, you know, I'm not into, I don't, I, I, I you know, I, I believe in, I really like the kind of nudge philosophy of libertarian paternalism. I don't think we should be, you know, I, we can't order force people, people to yeah. exercise. That's not going to happen, right? We can't, just like we can't prevent them from smoking, right? If somebody wants to smoke, that's their right. If somebody doesn't want to exercise, that's their right. But a lot of, but most of the people who, who don't exercise want to exercise. It's, and if you ask them, it's because they say they don't have time or they don't like it or, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons. And I don't think that we are, doing a very good job of helping those folks. And part of that is because I think we've taken this, we haven't really looked at this phenomenon, I think, with the right lens. And I think this evolutionary anthropological lens helps us rethink exercise because we're, you know, again, just, to, I know I sound like a broken record, but I think it's the, it's the key central message, which is that we're, we're telling people to do something which is fundamentally and intrinsically abnormal. And once you know that, I think that's empowering. Like, like when you're at that escalator and you and you're about to that little voice says, "Take the escalator, take the escalator." We all have that voice, right? If you know that, that helps you override it. That just that little bit of knowledge is, I think, very empowering. Just or think about time. If you know that just 21 minutes a day can lower your relative rate of dying, your risk of dying, you know, by by 50 percent, right? You lower the date, death rate by 50 percent being just physically active 21 minutes a day that you don't have to go run a marathon you don't have to go work out like a madman in the gym you know you don't have to do crazy amounts of stuff you can just do a moderate amount of physical activity and have an enormous benefit and i think that's also empowering and then the final thing is that if you hate being on a treadmill you're normal right there are, we we need to help people find ways to make physical activity necessary and rewarding right and to me i think the solution to, to that is is to make it social Right. And and um, and there are tons of ways that we could, as communities, uh, help each other um, promote more more sort of social forms of physical activity, like like dancing. Like one of the places that I, I, I work is Chihuahua. And when and in the city of Chihuahua, on, on many evenings in front of the church, there are just people dance. 
they're like little little kind of groups come and somebody's playing some music and anybody who wants to can just dance. It's like, it's just delightful. It's charming. Why don't we do that? You know, it would cost like, how much would it cost to like have a little umpa band or, you know, a jazz band or a rock band or whatever in various town squares and people could dance and, you know, everybody loves dancing. You know, I think one thing that I do when you just say turn off the switch is anytime I have to go less than a mile from my house, I always think, why am I taking the car? Because I know I, I walk pretty quickly, so it'll take me around 14 to 15 minutes to walk there at the pace that I do. I take the car, then I'm going to get aggravated because there's no parking in Brooklyn. And I'm like, well, it's not worth it. So I, I cognizant, I, I really try to stop myself. But as you say, it's, it's just so much, it, your brain just says, you know, just jump in the car is much easier. It's that fight. Yeah. So, so my question to you is, and you've been studying this for so many years and you're seeing these people, how do we take Americans and... I don't think it's a logical thing anymore. I think it's how do we show them that in your daily life, you can, all you need is X or to do X, garden, dance, uh, um, walk to the corner store. How do we get them to think that way when we've been brain, not brainwashed, but the, the marketing has been so brilliant to work out on this machine for 10 minutes a day and you have a body like that or do this or that? Well, I'm not sure I have a magic wand and I know exactly what that magic wand is because it's going to be really challenging. I think there are several things. The first is I would focus more on schools and kids. Um, you know, we really are doing a terrible job with it, physical education in schools. And that ex that's not just in elementary and middle school and high school. It's also in college. And there are a lot of studies which show that um, the habits that you develop when you're young, you keep as you age, right? And college seems to be really important for that. So it used to be that 100% of universities and colleges in America required physical education activity of some sort, 100%. And starting in the 1960s and 70s, that diminished. And now very few schools have physical education requirements, and they're kind of pitiful. But those are important years for helping develop lifelong habits. So I think, I think so. The first place to start is with our kids. I think that's that's. But I just I just want to interrupt you a second. When I was a kid, and the class was bad. Our punishment was we weren't allowed to go outside for recess. <laughs> and it never, you know, here you have kids that you just want to get some fresh. And we're made, you're talking about moving, movement and, and doing things. We had to sit in a classroom for three and a half hours or so, lunch, and then sit in the class for another three and a half hours. How are we supposed to be moving? Forget about gym. Gym was only twice a week. It wasn't daily. We had to sit straight, and if you and I was always a kid who fidgeted around everything. I used to get sent to the principal's office because I wasn't sitting still. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, this is a problem, right? And it's something that we can and should address. And and it's not like we don't know that the the you know that we don't know what we need to know to to solve this, right? I mean, it turns out there have been plenty of studies which you know when teachers worry that or school administrators, not teachers, it's school administrators worry that you know. If you don't have, if you if you you have more recess and playtime, then students will learn less. Actually, that's been disproven, right? We know that that's actually not true because you get back more, you get back more concentration and you get better memory and you get better mood and whatever. And there's like it's not a trade-off in the slightest. So so that's one thing. Um, so yeah, I mean this is just a no-brainer, right? But 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 it's going to have to take, I think. Uh, a concerted sort of general social action. It's a political issue. It's a parents' issue. It's a, you know, I think parents have to rise up against school committees and school boards and and whatever and and demand what's sensible and normal. So that's going to be, 
And I think most people understand that. I don't think that's going to be, I don't think it's a big lift. I think people know that. I think it's everybody and their grandmother knows that, right? This is not, uh, uh, this is not, this is not contrary to common sense. I think the larger kind of issue for older folks, for the rest of us, you know, middle-aged folks and older folks is going to be, is much more challenging. And I think that's going to require um, us taking a kind of broader view of physical activity. Because again, we tend to think of physical activity now as an optional kind of chore, like, like taking cod liver oil, right? Um, it's no fun. And the, and the various ways that we have to promote physical activity aren't very enjoyable for most people. So, I mean, some are like Zumba classes and, you know, I mean, it's amazing. I mean, I, I, my, I know friends now who are during this pandemic are now exercising with each other on zoom which is so cool i mean that's wonderful right and you know they're looking at each other across you know god's time and space and they're do doing jumping jacks and whatever and that's great we need to come up with more ways to do that and, and just make it fun and um you know big government program i'm not sure if that's going to succeed but certainly it's going to have to be a social shift in terms of you know, getting the word out but also encouraging it and and you know maybe this is where you know a small amount of money on on sort of just, you know, public service announcements. I'm not sure. I'm not, this is not my job, right? I'm not a, I don't know. I'm not a, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an evolutionary biologist. I'm not a you, you, psychologist. You, you find the problem, basically. Leave it to others to figure out how to <laughs> well, work that out. I, I, mean, I would love to figure it out, but, I, you know, it's unfortunately, that's not the skill set I have, but it's a psychological issue, right? So we need to get people who, whose job it is to help, you know, change, change, um, change, uh, our behavior is involved, but I think we need to get them thinking like anthropologists. We need to get them thinking, you know, because because if you think only about like what Americans do, you're going to miss a large part of the portion of the picture. And I think we need to take a broader view. Uh, it's it's funny, but when I say to people, you know, exercise is abnormal, people in the exercise world they look at me like I'm from Mars. Like, what are you talking about? And I explain, and like, oh yeah, I mean, we just haven't got this first basic insight down. Once we get that, I think there are, you can use that to do a lot of other things. So what is the minimum that someone would need that you would prescribe? I, I know this is not your field, but basically in these cultures where you've seen the average person, I'm not talking the outliers, the average physical activity that one would need living in America today, how would they get that? Well, first of all, the, the, the first thing you need to know is that in terms of like, we like to prescribe a dose, right? Everybody wants to know how much to take, how many pills to take and whatever. And so we want to know how much exercise to take. If you look at the data, the important thing to recognize is there is no one dose, right? If you're doing none, anything more than none is good. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's true. If you only exercise an hour a week, right? It doesn't have to be like super vigorous, like moderate exercise. You can lower your relative rate of dying by about 40%. 50, uh, you know, double that to, uh, to 150 minutes a week or so, you know, and, and, you know, you can go further down. So the curve eventually kind of flattens out. So you don't need to run marathons to get health benefits of physical activity. So I think we need to, you know, first of all, just, you know, if, if you're struggling to exercise, whatever you do is good <laughs> and you don't need to do a ton. So that's the first thing. Um, and then secondly, um, 
the more we learn about physical activity, the more we realize that, you know, cardio is still the base, right? You want to get your heart rate up and get blood pumping around your body. And that's good for hypertension and Alzheimer's and, and heart disease and all kinds of other things. But it's also, it's also important occasionally, you know, to mix it up. You want, you want to do some strength training occasionally, you know, lift stuff and carry things. And, and uh, sometimes it's really good to, to really pump it up and do something vigorous. If you're, if you're frail, make sure you see a doctor beforehand, but you know, um, but um yeah, mixing it up is kind of obvious. So, so the bedrock is walking, right? You know, we, we evolved to walk and, you know, like what you do, walk your dog every day for, you know, several miles. That's like fundamental. That's basic. You know, the average hunter gatherer walks six to nine miles a year. That's like, that's like from LA to what, New York city every year. What do you mean? That's six, to, six to nine miles a day. A day. So every day. Over a year that becomes the. That comes across, you cross the country. Every, you know, it's, it's, and, you know, you think walking from LA to DC is like an insane distance, but that's actually what we're built for. <laughs> and if you walk five miles a day, it's basically what you're doing. Uh, again, because the little bits add up over 365 days. That's a lot. So we can, um, you know, and then just, so just walk a lot and then, you know, climb the stairs occasionally or lift stuff and, you know. And if you can go to the gym, that's all, that's great. Or, you know, do push-ups. I, I do push-ups every morning while my coffee is, is uh, in, the, in the French press. I, it's four minutes. So I do push-ups while the coffee is sitting there. You know, I, I develop a habit, right? So now if I don't do that, there's something wrong with the coffee, right? You know, um, but that's it. You know, and we don't, it doesn't have to be very complicated. A little bit will go a long way. Mix it up, have fun. Don't make it, if, you, if it's unfun, if it's unfun, you won't do it. You know, and um, so make it fun and find out what you enjoy. If that's walking with a friend or, or if it's, um, you know, dancing or, or watching a movie on a treadmill, whatever it is. Just get moving. That, Just get moving. That's really uh, and find, find a way that's fun. And also, I think, I think we should treat exercise like education, right? Education is also abnormal. Nobody went to school in the Paleolithic, right? Nobody learned to read in the Paleolithic. Nobody learned algebra or, you know, fractions or any of that kind of stuff, right? And so how do we make education work? We make it necessary and fun, right? You, you got to go to school. It's required. But we also make school fun, usually, usually, not always, but usually, right? You see your friends, there's like music stuff and art and whatever. And, and I think we should treat exercise just the same way, make it necessary and fun. And there are lots of ways to do that. Before I let you go, Dan, is in these in these cultures that you that you observe, uh, the activity they're doing is in a social context, right? They're doing it usually in communities, uh, hunting together, running together. Uh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. When people go hunting, they often go together and they they gossip. You know, <laughs> they talk about what's going on back in camp and who's doing what to whom and all that kind of stuff. And and they and they they dance and they. And they, they work together, like, like the, the Hadza women I've gone out when they're digging tubers, you know, there's a whole bunch, they gossip for hours, you know, while digging these tubers up or, or guys in the field in Kenya um, are, um, you know, they're, they're, they're talking to each other while hoeing and plowing and, um, um, you know, they might be, you know, it's, it's social. Um, um, we're, we're social creatures and, um, and it's not coincidental that most of the, most of the, you know, when I, you know, when I exercise with, I often exercise with friends because it's fun. Otherwise, I wouldn't do it. Right, 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 right. Beautiful. Dan Lieberman, the book is Exercise. Fantastic. Love it. You made me feel so much better. I'm, I have a different relationship now that I look after a rigid book. I look at my rower. I don't feel so guilty. I say I'm basically programmed to hate you. And, 
I, I live with that, and I always try to find reasons to, to move. The, the book is really great. You've done a tremendous, tremendous service because I think the biggest thing is you've taken a lot of stress. For those who, who read your book, a lot of stress that one puts on oneself from not exercising or not doing that, uh, you basically show that's, that's ridiculous. You know, it just, it's, you, I just think of the, 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 the detriment of the stress levels, the anxiety and the procrastination and, and the work you have to work to, to move around that exit to not using yeah. that machine. It's energy wasted. Yeah. It's counterproductive. It's counterproductive. And so that's why I entitled the book exercise. I think we're exercise about exercise. Love it. So let's all be more compassionate. Love it. Dan, thank you so much for being on the show. I greatly appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Charles Mizrahi Show. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also see the video of the interview on The Charles Mizrahi Show channel on YouTube.